Welcome to Maximize Your Influence, your resource for the top persuasion, influence, and negotiation techniques that will help you maximize your success in life and business. And now, here are your hosts, Kurt Mortensen and Steve Olson. Welcome to another episode of Maximize Your Influence. I'm Steve Olson. I have Kurt Mortensen here with me. We're locked and loaded for another episode of your favorite podcast of all time with more great information to cover today. Kurt, what's the good word? How are you feeling today? Feeling good. Sun's out. Not as cold as it was. The vortex has vortexed away or devortexed. Is that the word? I don't know. And get into the playoffs. It's been a while since I've gotten into the NFL football playoffs. Sorry for those who aren't fans, but hey, I was saw some good games and saw some plays. I'm getting excited for the next couple of things and the Super Bowl, but then we get the nothing. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just getting into football. I'm watching the games and then Super Bowl and then it's nothing. So it's kind of a letdown, but I'm still having a lot of fun with it. Well, congratulations, Kurt. You have managed <laughs> to not only offend and alienate all of the non-football listeners, <laughs> but the basketball and baseball fans will no longer be listening. I'm more of a playoff type guy because then you know it's good stuff. Yeah. Although basketball playoffs, you just need to watch the fourth quarter to know what's going on because <laughs> it's always going to be tied up. Uh, yeah, that, and you don't need to watch <laughs> baseball until September. That's true. That's true. <laughs> yeah. Well, good. Yeah, I, I've been watching a lot myself. Some pretty good games. Very exciting. I love to watch these athletes because we live in this era of high def. I'm increasingly wondering why I would want to go sit at a football game when I can watch it on my big screen, high def TV with nachos and climate control and, and these just super close up great shots. I mean, how they have the cameras going over the field now. I mean, it's so cool. And you really get to see these athletes and how they perform under pressure. Being in sales and in business, you know, you're constantly asked to perform under pressure. I guess it's just kind of nice seeing somebody else have to do it for a change. Maybe that's what I'm getting at, but. No, I like that. Well, two things. I, I... Someone had said, called me up, said they had these you know, local college team and they got tickets. I'm like, yeah, I kind of want to watch it on TV. Yeah, I know. <laughs> you're you're in the couch, you're eating junk food. There's our plug for junk food today. But I agree with you with this high def. And I tell people this at seminar, I said, look at their eyes. They're into it. They're focused. They can see it. They're visualizing success. And I just, like, you look at these quarterbacks and they're all, you look at their eyes, you know, they're loaded. They are primed. They are programmed. They're visualizing it. They are seeing success. And that's what I love about watching athletes. Yeah. The mental state. I was watching the Colts versus the Patriots. And I mean, that was a, that was a trip, and those fans were loud. And Andrew Luck for the Colts is only his second year, but he's got a belief in his eyes, even though he kind of screwed up and, and lost that game. He just has that short memory like we were talking about last week. I think there's a lot to learn from how professional athletes manage their performance and manage their stress uh, when it comes to us in the business world. And that's why there's so many books from coaches and things that transition into the business world. Oh, I'm a big believer. There's a direct correlation be between success in sports and wealth and success in business, the mindset, the visualization, the mental programming, dealing with failures, dealing with setbacks. I'm a big believer in that. So absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's good stuff. And like I said, if you're listening right now, it's because our constant talk of food and football has not turned you <laughs> off and you probably even like it. Dare I say. <laughs> well, we only got a couple more weeks and then we won't be allowed to talk about it for 
good eight, nine months. Yeah, heaven forbid you tune into the podcast to hear us talk about persuasion and leadership, <laughs> which we'll be forced to do for a few months. Dang it. <laughs> Dang it. Ah, well, I'm back to work. <laughs> okay, well, everybody, here's the usual spiel. This is Maximize Your Influence, the revolutionary podcast on the topic of persuasion and influence, and we're glad to have you. We certainly would love to hear from you by emailing us at MaximizeYourInfluence at gmail.com. If you have ideas for the show, if you have insults for me, if you have compliments for Kurt, that's where you can send them. And you can listen to us via iTunes, BlackBerry, Windows Marketplace, all of those different smartphone apps that syndicate podcasts and just automatically download them to your devices. And if you're old school, just get on this thing called the internet and go to MaximizeYourInfluence.com and you can listen to the shows there. Okay, everybody, (laughs) let's get to a study that we found a frequent source for the studies we like to cite here on the show, an article by Harvard Business Review. Kurt and I uh, frequent it because it makes us feel smarter. Isn't that right? There you go. Just (laughs) holding it up. You don't have to read it on the airplane. Just hold it up, look around, and people think you're smarter. Got 50, yeah, 50% (laughs) chance of getting upgraded to first class. That's right. (laughs) Turns out, Kurt, this is a workplace study. Employees who feel love perform better. So before you go out and get sued for sexual harassment, everybody, listen to the rest of what I have to say, because the study goes into some more detail. Obviously, we're not talking about romantic love. We're talking about that kind of camaraderie, that relationship of we're helping each other out. We feel appreciated. I do something good. I'm recognized for it. Bill over here does something, I recognize him for it, we go out to lunch, we're on the same team. Those kinds of atmospheres perform better, and there's a movie recently, I think I talked about it, called The Wolf of Wall Street, that highlights the debauchery of a certain Wall Street firm back in the late 80s, early 90s, and it was an atmosphere of just pure cutthroat, you know, you were to perform, and you viewed the clients as a target, and yelling at each other. And that's how a lot of sales offices, a lot of businesses are run, unfortunately. I think over time that's become better because people want to be in an atmosphere where they feel appreciated. And this study seems to back up the fact that it will increase the results. I got a quick quote for you from the study. Employees who felt they worked in a loving, caring culture reported higher levels of satisfaction and teamwork. They showed up to work more often. Our research also demonstrated that this type of culture related directly to client outcomes, including improved mood, quality of life, satisfaction, and fewer client emergencies. So it just not only does it create happier, more productive workers, but it creates happier, more productive, I would dare say, and this is my interpretation, higher dollar value clients. And it all comes through in the quality of work that comes through to those clients, if that makes any sense. Kurt, does that sound about right to you? Oh, that's right on the money. When people know that you care, you know, I don't know if love's the word, that they love that you're part of the group. We've seen it time and time again where employees will go get a job at less pay, but they're appreciated. They're part of the team. They feel love. People care about them. People care about what's happening in their home and their weekend. It goes a long way. They even saw this with construction workers the one boss that was you know do this or do that or do your fire like you you mentioned in the movie it's a wolf on was it wolf on the wall street yeah wolf on uh, wall street huh 
versus the one that cared, that did compliment, that said nice things. And it comes back to the old self-esteem that we've talked about, that the biggest complaints come back to failing to give suggestions, uh, failing to encourage, criticizing in front of others, uh, practicing favoritism, or I'd say here perceived favoritism. And if people know that you care, you can get away with a lot more as far as when you make mistakes. And look, they're coming to work more. There's fewer sick days. They're going to have more motivated. It's just a win-win. But the challenge is old school persuasion is do it or you're fired because it's quick and it's easy and it doesn't take any talent or skill. You don't have to have a heart. That's right, exactly. Old school persuasion, the do it or you're fired, there's an addendum to that now. It's do it or you're fired, and the employee says, no thanks, I quit. Uh, they don't have to put up with that. They don't perceive themselves as having to put up with it. In fact, I didn't tell you this yet, but I talked to, and they'll remain nameless, but an individual that we both know, who works for a company that does one-on-one -on -one consulting for people. And so he has to fly out and work with these people for three days at a time. and they basically they would pay him a certain amount of money to go do this and he got an email that last night that said we're cutting pay it was by 40 percent kurt i mean mm. who gets an email cutting pay 40 percent mm, and it was basically this is the way it is it took three hours after that email went out for the whole staff to immediately resign <laughs> That, <laughs> what do wow, you say? I'm just stunned. Who are these people and who thought this through and who needs to be fired because, well, duh, what do you think was going to happen? You know these people, but also, number two, who thought this through? Obviously, nobody did. <laughs> unless, unless that was your goal. Then you're some kind yeah, of an see, evil if genius. If that was their intent to get brand new staff and retrain and start all over, then it was brilliant. But <laughs> I'm not seeing an upside to that at all. Yeah, it's pretty bad. That style just doesn't work anymore. So when we talk about this study that Harvard showed about the, the love and the compassion in the workplace, it doesn't mean you're, you're not going to be holding people accountable and that you're not going to be results driven. It just means that when you don't have to be that way, you're not that way. And the irony of the study is, is that you have less of a reason to have to have that hard driving attitude because they're showing up for work more and they're getting better results. So We'll post a link to the study in the blog. You can go to MaximizeYourInfluence.com and click on that and check it out. And once they know that you have their best interest in mind, that you truly care, they can take a little criticism. They can take a little correction. They can take a redirection, and that's okay because you've built it up with your caring, with your love, with your compassion. But when that doesn't exist, when that bank account's not there, do you take a withdraw and give someone 40% pay cut, you've got long-term resentment, rebellion, and it'll be nice to see what they say on the internet about this particular company. Mm, yes, it will be nice. <laughs> You're absolutely right. Stephen R. Covey, the late Dr. Covey, talked about the emotional bank account all the time. And I think that's what this study comes down to, is if, if your clients have that, or your, your employees rather, have that emotional bank account with a really high balance, gives you so much leeway to do the other things that you need to do. And uh, they're just uh, better off. Everybody's better off. Happy, productive workplace. Nothing wrong with that. Well, I think you need to add here too. It's not just your employees, but it's also your customers. When you have that compassion and that relationship and people like you and you're doing a good job and you make a mistake, then there's also that bank account there and you're able to move on past that versus if it's not there, you've lost a customer for life. That's right. That's right. Just don't be a jerk. There you go. <laughs> We need t-shirts. Now that's with our next step. We need a little swag. Don't be a jerk and we'll uh, <laughs> get, a, get you a nice hat and t-shirt.
I saw a meme like that the other day. They didn't use the word jerk, though, so we can't talk about it on the show or put it on the blog, but you get the idea. So we'll move it along here, folks, on to some more information in the fast world of persuasion and influence. Last week, we talked about the law of social validation. People look for social cues as to how they should behave in any given situation. So when it comes down to business, when it comes down to sales, people, when they're considering whether or not they should do business with you, they're looking for those social cues. For example, I know, Kurt, in the in the seminar industry, one subtle example of social validation, and we used to do this, <laughs> okay, full transparency here. When you market for a, a seminar or a workshop of some kind, sometimes the percentage of people that shows up can be kind of a crapshoot, can it? Oh, you have no idea if you're going to have a thousand people in the room or two people in the room. You don't know. And you could have a ton of people registered, but it might be a new market. You could be trying out some different sales copy or a different type of event. You don't know what it's going to be, but you've got to tell the banquet people at the hotel how many chairs to put up. And the last thing you need is for there to be 250 chairs in the room and 40 people spread out across the 250 chairs, right? It's just, it's not good for business. And so I know a lot of seminar companies will, they just take those down and they kind of take over for the banquet people so that when people come in, they have to go get them a chair. It's a very subtle social cue of, wow, this is popular. People want to be here. I'm in the right place. Those guys had to go get a chair for me because there wasn't enough room. And that's another good subtle example of, of how we use social validation today. Well, part of that's because of the man law that if there's a lot of seats, you can't sit next to another guy. <laughs> <laughs> and when everyone's spread out, you're like, oh, they're not all that. Nobody's there. And plus, when you get people sitting close together, there's more emotion. There's more energy, as you know. And that's true. If you're expecting 100 people, set it up for 20. Put the seats in the back, more seats, more energy, more than expected. People are sitting together, more social validation. It's a no-brainer, but a lot of people, at least rookies in the any type of meeting or seminar industry, they will eventually have to learn that one. Yeah, so if you're holding any kind of group meetings, maybe you're a financial planner that does those lunch meetings or hosts dinners for people, you know, whatever it is, you have to have that in mind. You talked about the man locker, and I was laughing. I mean, if you want to... You mentioned the vortex earlier. If you want to tear a hole in the vortex and create a black hole that sucks the whole universe in, what you need to do is get in that first boarding group of Southwest Airlines that gets on the plane. And one of those guys that goes and sits on the plane and there's still 95 seats left and go sit right next to him in the middle seat. <laughs> uh, I prefer to do that in a movie theater when there's three people. You just go out and get your popcorn and sit right next to them, and they freak out. I know. It's making me <laughs> uncomfortable just talking about it, but it goes to show you that that's like a real law in our society. <laughs> proximics, the study of space, right? It's just something about that. They, like they did a study at, uh, with the blackjack players when there's two women and two men playing together, and when the two women would leave, the two men would separate. But when the two men would leave, the women would stay close together because they don't have the man law. But there's something about that that people need to realize when they're working with people. So weird. That whole movie theater thing is just giving me the heebie-jeebies. I don't know what I'd do <laughs> if somebody just came and plopped. That'd be a great hidden camera show. <laughs> I guess if they did if they put their arm around you or not, right? <laughs> that takes to it to a popcorn. whole new level. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well... Those are some, uh, I'm not saying they're good examples, but they are examples of social yes, validation. They are. <laughs> and we wanted to get into a little bit, into that a little bit more today about how social validation increases credibility 
and get into a a very important topic, that being testimonials, because it's easily butchered. I mean, you've seen the, the infomercials. You've seen, like we were talking about on last episode, Yelp. The person that writes the review is, as I walked into the restaurant, I was greeted by a pleasant ambiance of beautiful water fountains and an aroma only captured in the south of France. And you're going, okay, that's fake testimony. That's what your BS meter starts going ding, ding. <laughs> that, that's right. So we're going to get really scientific today and show you how to not trip the testimonial BS meter. How's that? Here we go. We need to have a special sound for that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I have some ideas that we can talk about. <laughs> Well, why don't you, uh, Kurt, you had some things to say on increasing credibility via the law of social validation. So say them. Well, credibility, as you know, is essential for social validation, for persuasion, for trust, you know, being prepared, your parents, having other people introduce you, qualifications. We can talk about all those. But the easiest one anybody can add right now to their repertoire is testimonials because you're borrowing credibility from somebody else. Because a lot of times you don't have credibility or you have something to gain. You have to realize it's all about the testimonials. That's borrowing credibility from somebody else because as we mentioned last week, you have something to gain. So now you need to borrow it from somebody else. You look at the infomercial business. 90% of all infomercials fail. And when they fail, they bring them back to the cutting room and all they do is they add testimonials. They add testimonials or bring somebody in from... We won't mention the state with no teeth or strange hair or strange looks. And they're like, I made $40,000 in two weeks. And you're like, oh, if they can do it, I can do it. Sounds like California. (laughs) I didn't mention any states. Oh, okay. That wasn't the one I was thinking of. But anyway. (laughs) I just went as far from from, possible. I'm from California. That's where I was born. So we can't use that state. You got the subtle Uh, insult then. (laughs) Thank you. Uh, Anyway, the... (laughs) 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 You're throwing me off here. So borrow credibility, and here's the key that people need to realize. Always ask. People are more than willing to give you testimonials when you've exceeded their expectations. Make it easy for them. Write it for them. It's okay to do that. A lot of people aren't sure about their English or they're not going to get around to it, so write it for it. But run it by them. Say, hey, look, here's the testimonial. This is our experience together. They'll change a few words, and you'll have their permission Another aspect of making it easy, maybe you just want to pull out your camera phone or your camera video and record it and realize you never have enough. Even if you had a website of 100 testimonials, just the sheer quantity would give you credibility. Hey, if someone wants to read it all, go for it. You're going to put the best ones probably at the top, but testimonials are powerful. And you want to make sure you do it the right way and borrow that credibility. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You borrow it, and by borrowing it, you generate your own time and time again. So. What are some of the no-nos? What, what should we avoid doing when we're getting some testimonials together for our website or sales copy or whatever? Well, drooling, foaming at the mouth, that sort of thing oh, is not going to kill you a lot of testimonials. No, this is what we're getting at. Let me just kind of go through some ingredients that when you go for a testimonial, you have to realize that when you ask somebody for a testimonial and they write it, uh, probably won't be very good. If you try to record it, and you don't ask the right questions, probably wouldn't be very good. So you have to steer them in the right direction with this testimonial to get the right type of information. And so there's basically, let's go over five different ingredients that the more you get, the more powerful this testimonial is going to be. So the first one is, and this is going to depend on your industry and what you can and can't do, but the first one is some type of income claim or benefit claim. 
making $24,000 in two weeks, or you lost 20 pounds in 10 days, whatever it is, it could be an income claim or a benefit claim, or the baby started to sleep through the night, or my IQ went up 37 points, whatever it is, that's important. The next piece is, I'm like you. We want to see people that are like us or even worse than us, like I mentioned, that, hey, wait a minute, my husband leaves his socks on the ground too, or wait a minute, I couldn't lose weight either. Wait a minute, I was in a dead-end job. That connects you with people. And then put as much information as possible. Because if you put up a testimonial and you say, it's Bob or JB or Frank, people are very skeptical, like, wait a minute. So put their name, put their picture if they can, put where they're from if you can. You don't have to put their mother's maiden name or social security number or anything like that. But the more information you put on there, the more credible it is. And here's the rule that when you have a testimonial, that's great. But if you add a picture, it has more credibility. If you add a video, it has more credibility. Those are some things to think about. And the next one is make sure it's believable. Now, ready here, always truthful, but the truth isn't always believable. Like, Steve, you do a lot with real estate. For someone to make a couple extra hundred thousand dollars a year, is realistic. A lot of people do that, but if someone's never done real estate, never, doesn't know anything about real estate, has never researched real estate, even though it's truthful, not, might not be believable. That's right? right. That's right. And that's important. And then the next one is the credibility of the person saying it. Do they know who they are? Are they in the same religion or the same school? Are they famous? Is it an author? Is it a president? Is it a, a CEO? The more famous that person is, the more the person knows that person the more valid is that testimonial. But it's rare to get all of those, but the more you can get, the more powerful that testimonial is going to be. Hmm. Well, that's all good information on that side of things. So a video specific about where the person is and, and make, it, uh, make it relatable. I guess that's why in a lot of these uh, late night infomercial testimonials, and, you know, we, we bring these up and we poke fun at them, but they're, they're actually quite persuasive. I know I've been up late with the baby for a few nights and these are certainly on and I get a kick out of them. But it's, it's not the tan, perfect sports car driving Armani suit wearing guy that's the subject of the testimonial, is it? No, a lot of times it's someone that's even worse than you are as far as looks or where they dress or where they started out. And that's what gives it a lot of credibility. That's why testimonials are so powerful. Because if you didn't have any testimonials, you never believe what they're saying. But when there's a third-party validation, it goes a long way. Do you have any examples of really bad testimonials? <laughs> well, yeah, I do. Let me talk about that. Before I do, remember, you ask them the right questions. You don't think, hey, what did you think? You say, what is the number one benefit you got? Tell me how much more money you made. What much weight did you lose? And you want to ask specific questions to get the right things. Now, I get a lot of unsolicited testimonials. And don't get me wrong, I appreciate them, but I can't necessarily use them. And I have, it's hard for me because, again, I really appreciate it. But if it doesn't have any of those ingredients, I can't use them. Let's go through some of these and we'll kind of tear them apart as far as good, bad, ugly. I've got some real doozies over the years. Because at seminars, we ask for testimonials. This one is from Alan Brady. He said, the seminar didn't stink. It was great. I really enjoyed myself. Now, he was kind of a <laughs> smart aleck, obviously, and he was trying to be funny. And there's some issues there, obviously. I, I don't think people would go to a seminar just because it didn't stink. And then his name is Alan Brady, which now you're thinking, wait a minute. Wasn't that a Brady Bunch guy? Who Alan, wait, is it the real name? And people get so skeptical. So I... 
even though I appreciate it, and even though he was trying to be funny, can't use it. Here's another one. I think actually you might have been around when I got this one. This one's from I can't. I'll just say the first name. This one's from Douglas, and this is what he says: As being my first time being incarcerated, I have been <laughs> on the continuous lookout for anything that could improve my life. After endless disappointment, I stumbled upon another inmate who had maximum influence. For those that know, that's my first book. I traded my dinner trays for a week so I could read the book. Awesome. I plan on starting a business when I am in released, and now I feel more confident. Douglas P. 89305, California State Prison. <laughs> hey, thanks, Douglas. I appreciate it. I don't know if our listeners ever gotten mail from jail, but it's stamped right on the envelope that it's coming from an inmate because I've got some others from, from jail. I don't know. There must be a lot of books going through the, the prison system in the United States. Now, if I was going to speak to convicted felons or murderers or people who've been to prison, I might be able to use that. But as is, for getting people to spend time with me at a seminar, I can't use that. <laughs> Have you thought about writing him back and seeing if it could be edited? You mean the testimonial? Yeah, yeah, just tell him, hey, pal, love your testimony. we got to take about <laughs> the part out of the part about you being in prison, though. <laughs> yeah, that's a possibility. <laughs> I got one from one inmate. I loved your book. It was great. It changed my life. But I... I'm going to get out and write a better book than you. I'm like, thank you for that. Yeah. <laughs> okay. All right. Tell me what you think about this one. Dear Mr. Mortensen, thank you for coming today. I had a lot of fun. You were so funny. I never had so much fun in my life. I hope you will come again. If I had enough money, I would buy your book. Thanks, Charity, Miss Bishop's third grade class. <laughs> <laughs> again, I appreciate it. It was a lot of fun, but doesn't meet any of that criteria unless my goal was to speak to third graders then that would be priceless <laughs> if i have enough money i will buy your book i wish prospects were that honest that's right <laughs> you have to get that from a third grader or how about this one i won't name the name because she's a good friend she sent me actually a two-page testimonial she says from las vegas seeing a truly gifted speaker present their platform can lift the audience right out of the mundane and elevate them to a higher range of vibration much as a musician or performer communicates on the aesthetic wavelength, if your goal is to change people's lives for the better, you're accomplishing it. Thoughts, feedback, critiques, rude remarks? Oh, I don't even know what to say about that one. It just is, uh, what is she talking about? <laughs> yeah, you know, I might be able to use the last sentence as far as if your goal is to change people's life, but obviously she's a musician. Obviously, if I was speaking to musicians, it might be good, but for most people over the head now if i were to use that and this is a point for everyone for example on the web i would highlight the last sentence you know underline and highlight the most important sentences and that's what people's going to remember it's also an embedded command and it goes a long way mm -hmm. now here's now here's a strange one that even though it's not very good i use it and i'll ask you why when i'm done your magnetic persuasion program magnifies your inherent ability to persuade Mark Victor Hansen, Chicken Soup for the Soul. Yeah, well, it, the name is going to... He's got such a higher threshold for writing a crappy testimonial because of the credibility <laughs> behind his name. <laughs> he says, if he would have said, I like broccoli and I like Kurt, I still would have used it just because <laughs> it's the name, right? We talked about the name and the name recognition and how far that goes. And that's really important. Just getting when you have the name, Here's one, Magnetic Persuasion's incredible course. It shows you how to immediately influence and persuade other people in every area of your life. It's pretty good, but that's Brian Tracy. Stephen Covey, this is truly remarkable information. 
unbelievably comprehensive with fresh new angles and practical examples. Stephen Covey, or Robert Allen of uh, Nothing Down and Multiple Streams of Income. So those we're just doing those for the names. So if you can follow those things, and I can show you some again some really vague ones. I appreciate people doing them, and in their own mind they're being nice. But for a lot of people, you have to coach them. You have to ask them, can you add this? Can you do this? Or write it for them. That's okay. But testimonials are a powerful source of social validation. That's right. When I came out with my first book and you watch people, they pull out the book. They look at the front. Then they don't open it up. They look at the back. They're looking for endorsements. That's why I made sure you had the names I mentioned, Stephen Covey and Mark Victor Hansen and even Larry King to endorse the book. So all of a sudden, as a first-time author, I could borrow credibility through testimonials, and you could do that for your product, your service, or your idea. So here's a, here's a tricky question. Why do you care then? If you've got, let, let's take Brian Tracy. I like his books. I like his information. And we take your book, for example, your goal being to, to sell books, which, by the way, Kurt's book is available on Amazon.com. Shameless plug. Ooh, like the plug. Yeah. So... Brian Tracy being on the back of the book is better than Bill from Omaha because why? Because it's if you like Brian, like you mentioned you do, you like his stuff, then all of a sudden all that credibility transfers over to, over to me. Well, you like Brian. If Brian likes me, you are going to like me. Now, if the person from Ohio had similar characteristics to the person you're going after, I got it, one testimony I didn't get to, it talked about, being a chiropractor, how this, how the persuasion course should have been part of her education. That's great if I was going after chiropractors versus the general public. So the fact that it's a book on a bookshelf and it's being marketed on a mass basis to, to the general public, those highly credible testimonials from well-known authors and speakers go a long way. But if it was more like a really targeted infomercial or brochure or something like that being sent to a specific demographic, you'd want to bring that in too. You'd want to bring in more testimonials of the kind of people that you're targeting to that demographic. Well, let's say I was marketing to insurance agents and I had 100 testimonials from insurance agents that tripled their sales in two months because of taking the course. Now all of a sudden, whoa, whoa, that rings true because they're in the same boat, the same market, the same industry, going after the same leads. Wow, this the sheer numbers is a source of validation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, good point. Well, good. Anything else you want to add on to uh, as far as how our listeners can get their testimonials tuned up and such? The biggest thing is always ask, expect it, make it as easy as possible for them, write it if you have to, or pull out your phone. You never have enough. Those are key things. And get all those ingredients in. It's rare that you can get all of them, but it's such a key factor. Don't just let them write it on their own. Get it right away and ask two or three questions that are specific that will give you some of those ingredients that will make a huge difference in borrowing that credibility and getting that social validation. Very good. Very good. Yeah, laying it out for them, letting them know, hey, these are the kinds of things that are helpful for people to hear and understand when you're writing the testimonial. So if you could include what your experience was like with respect to those three things, like how much money you made or how much effort this took or how well my product performed, whatever it was that you wanted, then it's better. Then you avoid that issue of uh, you know, the unsolicited testimonial that had no guidance and is thus totally useless, even though it has good intentions. Giddy up. Giddy up. So we've got a ninja, Kurt. Oh, there it is. There's the sound. Love the ninja. 
Love the ninja. And this ninja, he will not always be a ninja. Well, maybe he will. I don't know. But this is my brand new son, Henry. He is two weeks old, and he is already an expert negotiator. They, they come out into this world with one tool, and that's crying. That's what they use to get what they want. And he knows just the perfect amount of crying to get my wife and I to go crazy enough to pick him up. <laughs> and wouldn't you know, once he's picked up, is he crying anymore? <laughs> no. No. He's a pro. He's a total faker, but he's got us wrapped around his finger. And I was thinking about this because it's cute depending on what time of day, right? Now, it's funny that he knows how to do that at such a young age. Get people that are so much bigger and older than him to do whatever he wants through crying. But people, Kurt, they grow up. And a lot of times they don't have techniques that are much more advanced than that in their arsenal, do they? They don't. A lot of techniques we've learned, we learned as kids. And they say the squeaky wheel gets the grease, but I think we're getting to a time and age like, no, I'm tired of the squeak. Let's just replace it. So you have to be careful on how much that technique is used. That's why I say he's a ninja now. But in the <laughs> in the real world, people take these. They, they got used to it as a kid. Didn't get what you want? Say it louder. Cry more. Whine more. Complain more. And people will give you what you want. And you get into the business world, and that is not rewarded any longer. So I guess on a parental level, we're not doing our kids any favors <laughs> by responding to that kind of uh, persuasion and negotiation. And this is a classic example because, you know, my kid, he's two weeks old. He's a ninja. But once he gets to be the age of Kurt's kid, who is our blunder, <laughs> then <laughs> then it begins to be a little bit of an issue. But I think you wanted to uh, embarrass your son, so to speak on the podcast here and make him the blunder, or am I wrong there? <laughs> well, as we're talking about kids as being ninjas, as they grow, they start taking those ninja skills and they become blunders, in fact. And in fact, in my family, we call it anti-suasion. <laughs> we coined a new <laughs> word for it. It's anti-suasion. You're like, really? That's how you're trying to persuade me? Like, it's not fair. You're a persuasion expert. I'm like, it doesn't matter. That was terrible. That wouldn't work anywhere. And... <laughs> They don't realize that the challenge with these kids is they it worked once or twice as kids, right? And they keep trying them, keep trying them, keep trying them. So it's worked once, and the next 20 times it doesn't work, but they keep trying it because it worked that one time. And that's the key. They just don't have that many tools. Like my son will come in, especially my wife, and say, oh, you look great today, Mom. And dinner was so awesome to the point where she's like, okay, really, what would you want? What happened at school? Did you get in trouble? <laughs> and they can see right through that. I have one daughter that's famous. This is an old negotiation kind of dirty deed technique called fogging. It comes from if you were to swing a bat in the fog, you'd never hit anything. And that's what people do where you're like, well, what did you do? And they're like, oh, man, it was really cold tonight. And says, well, tell us what happened. And they'll just kind of be evasive and beat around the bush and never answer the question. Probably kind of like a politician, right? Just kind of keep fogging until you just get mad at each other. And I can go on and on with these techniques, but I think most of our listeners know that when they look at kids and children, they have very few techniques. They're using it the wrong way. They try to be nice. We see this with probably five to 10-year-olds. They're nice. Hey, you want to do this? And I'll, I'll be your friend. And like, no, like, well, then I don't like you anyway. Like, they go from nice to angry in like less than a half a second. We see quite a bit with kids. So children can be both. As you know, listeners, they can be ninjas and they can be full of our Homer Simpson blunders. 
and that's reality. But you can learn a lot from children as far as ways to do it and ways not to do it. I know an individual who had a lot of success um, in the business world from about 2002 through 2007, did really well. And, you know, used some certain sales techniques through that time that were, were effective. But see, he's committing that blunder that you were talking about. Well, it worked for a while, and now you're now his whole paradigm is based around that. I have to sell this certain way. And I won't go into the details of, of why, but the nature of the product and the time that we live in now, you're not going to be successful selling that way. It's just not going to happen. And so you have to realize when you cross that line of, okay, am I using an old outdated technique versus am I trying to reinvent the wheel? Some stuff is is time-tested and it's proven and we can use it over and over again. But when the results start tanking, don't try to be a time traveler and force everybody back into that time. You've got to adapt with the times and use something that's more effective. Yeah, that's what we think we said before that even a blind pig can find food. <laughs> Doesn't mean you're using the best techniques. And we see this a lot with hard closes. It's like, hey, it worked. And hard closes do work two to three percent of the time, but they have a fifty percent buyer's remorse rate. And if that's your technique, it will. You will find eventually find somebody that will bend to your techniques. But why not find a different technique that's going 10, 20, 30, 40%? Change your ways, adapt with just like you're talking about. It's a new world of sales. It's a new world of persuasion. And if you're using stuff that worked 20 years ago, 10 years ago, five years ago, it's going to be a painful day at the bank when you realize that they're not working anymore. Ouch. Yep. Yep. Well, that about does occur to everybody. I hope that you're having a great January. I hope you haven't bailed out on your New Year's resolutions yet. (laughs) (laughs) Do it another couple more weeks at least. Come on. Uh, Exactly. Try to to get into February this year. Maybe we ought to do a podcast on goal setting, but we'll talk about that one certainly. Anything else you want to tell the listeners, Curb, before we sign off for the week? Just remember, as we talked about the last couple podcasts, social validation, borrow credibility, make your product the best selling in your area, in your division, in your state, in your city. Can you make your product a trend, the norm, number one, top 10, fastest growing, whatever it is. And bottom line, get as many testimonials as possible. Ask for as many referrals as possible because that makes a huge difference. That should be at least half your business people referring to you because you do what you say, you exceed expectations, and it makes your life a lot easier because you're making more money and doing less prospecting. Sounds good to me. Thanks so much for your time, Kurt. Thanks, everybody, for your time as well. We will catch you next week on another episode of Maximize Your Influence. See you next week. 